what are your qualifications? Ah, well, I attended Juilliard. I'm a graduate of the Harvard Business School. I travel quite extensively. I have people skills. I am good at dealing with people. You just don't know when to give up, do you? I could do this all day. The Matt Sodnikar Podcast. Welcome to the podcast. This is Matt Sodnikar, and I am here today with Dr. Peter McGraw. He is the professor of marketing and psychology at CU Boulder, the director of Hurl, which is the humor research lab, co-author of The Humor Code. And with that, uh, doctor, thanks for making the time. I appreciate it. Yeah, on a nice uh, snowy day. What else would I be doing? <laughs> exactly. Um, I wanted to first ask a question about connecting your book, The Humor Code, with another one of my favorites, The Science of Fear. And you go into talking about um, prisoners of war in the Vietnam War. And the author from The Science of Fear puts forth the concept is that humor is a survival mechanism. And I think you touched on that a little bit, but I just wanted to sort of open the conversation that way. Yeah, so, um, uh, you know, it's interesting you bring up that element of the book because it's it's actually not something that we, we get asked a lot about. Um, and yet uh, it's really a puzzle, right? This idea of why is it that you find humor in the darkest of dark places? You know, the most notably the, you know, the work that's been done on, you know, it's, it's anecdotal, it's, it's, um, uh, it's stories, but, you know, about comedy in concentration camps, mm-hmm. for example, like that should be the place that you do not find it at all. And other prisoners prisoner of war camps and so on and uh and it certainly seems to be the case now of course it's not the norm it's not frequent um and uh and that's something that uh that we found we actually interviewed a um a concentration camp survivor and the way she talked about it was moments of comedy were indeed rare and they usually happened in moments of safety Mm. you know so you happen to get a meal, you happen, you know what I mean? Like it's nighttime, people are together. It's sort of communal, you know I mean? There's a safe space associated with it all. Now, I, I don't think that, that comedy's primary purpose is to deal with fear. Actually, I think um, that's not the case. Actually, I think comedy is really derived from play. Hmm. Um, and so what we, you know, what we see is, you know, comedy, stand-up comedy, improvisational comedy, um, you know, the kind of entertainment world of comedy seems kind of far away from tickling and play fighting, but but they're connected. At least I think that they're connected. Um, and, and the reason I believe this is because you can find laughter and you can find humor in non-human mammals um, as basic a creature as a rat. Um, really? Yes. Yeah, so if you go to YouTube, um, you can you can look for rat tickling. <laughs> and and um, when I saw this video, it was a game changer for me. Like it was just an incredible moment in in terms of my research, because these uh, these researchers, what they do is they you know so first of all they 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 work with rats to to study emotions and the basics of like what we call affect, so positive to negative emotions. And rats are surprisingly social. 
Um, they're like, they can be kind of friendly and fun and playful um, in ways, you know, in ways that like we think mice are like that, but actually rats are much, much, much more so. And so these rats get comfortable with their captors. And, um, and what, they, what, these, what these scientists can do is kind of roughhouse the rats, flip them over on their back and kind of scratch their belly and, and tussle with them a little bit. And, um, and two amazing things happen. The first is if you have an ultrasonic recorder, because a human ear can't pick up the, the um, sounds that these rats make, they make this kind of chirping sound in those situations. And, um, and what's interesting is if the rough housing gets too rough, those chirping sounds are replaced by the sounds that rats make when they're angry or scared or fighting, you know, in a, in a fight or flight kind of response. And that chirping is, is um, you know, it's hard to call it laughter per se, but the precursors of laughter. This, the second thing is, is that when, when these researchers move their hand to the other side of the cage after doing this tussling and rough housing, the rats seek out the hand. Hmm. They pursue the hand and try to kind of engage with it. Now, what's interesting, I think, is that that's really what we're doing when we engage in comedy with, with funny people. That is, it's not physical tussling, but it's verbal tussling. It's a situation that's wrong yet okay, that's threatening yet safe or as um, the vernacular we use in Hurl is a benign violation. Mm-hmm. And, um, and the, the thing is, is that like people go to comedy. I'm going to a comedy show tonight. That's the human equivalent of a rat crossing, <laughs> right? Is crossing the cage to right. interact with that hand. And I, I'll pay $10 for this, you know, kind of a thing. And I'll drive through nine degree weather and, and snow in order to try to create this this experience. And so you can find this, um, you know, anybody who has a dog will argue that their dog, you know, especially in playful times is, has some form of laughter or is experiencing positive emotion, like, like humor. And certainly in the, in the ape world, there's tons of evidence that this is the case. And so really what has happened is that as, as we, as humans have evolved, now we have societal and cultural norms we have lang- conventions of language. The things that can go wrong and the things that can be okay have expanded greatly. And it's not just limited to the physical play fighting and so on that's there. And, and so what's happened is that these, this experience, in the same way that you can feel, you know, our ancestors might have felt pri- pride over, you know, putting down an antelope and having food for the clan. Um, now you can have pride over your son's non-failing grades at the elite school of business, right? You know what I mean? So, so the, so what happens, I think is that in a world of concentration camps, POW camps, um, dark places, the things that are wrong are very clear, right? They're, Mm -hmm. they're pervasive, they're ubiquitous. And in those moments where that thing may not be seen as wrong, for the most hardy, robust individuals, for the people who are striving to deal with this, have coped in some way with this, who has a warm meal in their belly, they can have moments of, um, of comedy, of experiencing humor. Now, what's interesting, I think, and related to your, to, to your question about the science of fear is when you think about, well, what are the 
benefits of this experience um, and, and how they'd help us deal with the dark world. I'll, I'll go through them very briefly for you. So, so the first one is, is that like that laughter is good for us. Um, you know, it's, it's just a positive thing for our bodies, uh, the, but the effects of those are re- relatively minor. Um, but, but they do exist. The second is, um, positive emotion and positive mm. emotion is very, very good for us. And so it helps a range of things from helping immune functioning to helping creativity. Um, the next one is, is the notion of social support. And this is more on the production side of comedy rather than the receiving side of comedy. That is that um, people who are funny garner more support, better friendships, better relationships than people who are not. And this is especially so in troubling times. That is, we, 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 you and I know that person and listeners know that person, that person who's just always sour. You know, and and they may have good reason to be sour. You know, their wife has left them. They're ill. They've got irritable bowel syndrome. They, (laughs) you know, they're in debt. They've got all these problems, right? You know, this kind of stuff. The problem is, and that person needs help, right? They need social support. They need friends. They need family, et cetera. The problem is, is that those people wear out their social support. You know, because like when you're with a sour person all the time, it's just, it just weighs on you. And so it's hard to provide them support. What's interesting is the person who can transform their irritable bowel syndrome, their divorce, their bad credit score into something that's funny. You know, this is perverse because that person actually probably needs the help less because they're, they have some skill and ability to adapt and deal with it. But they're much easier to be around and be supportive. And so... Um, we've done some work in the lab on um, the difference between complaining and humorous complaining. Right. Humorous complainers get better support, even though um, their um, problems aren't seen as, as, as big. And then the last thing, I think this is related most to, to your question. I like how I wait to the very end to answer it, which is the act of transforming something dark, wrong, threatening, a violation into something uh, light, okay, safe, or benign, is that it actually can change the way you think of that thing. Yes. And so now it can change you in a cognitive way because now you've reappraised the world and that world seems less bad. So the act of making the joke can actually make the situation truly better. I remember it'll be two years ago this fall um, was going through a dark time in my life and I probably have it written down in a journal somewhere. I worked at home and this, things were imploding, but Is it, was it the irritable bowel syndrome? It was, <laughs> it, it was, <laughs> how did you know? <laughs> Frequent listener. Thank you. <laughs> um, but I just remember walking through the house and something I thought cracked me up. Okay. And I hadn't laughed on my own in months. Uh, like I'd, I'd seen movies or something. F- I've laughed. Right. Mm-hmm. But I crack myself up all the time. And in that particular circumstance, it had been a long time 
and long enough that when it happened, yes, it was unique. And then I knew I had turned a corner. Ah, uh, nice. Yeah, you know, we I think it was in that same chapter we we talked about this notion of comedy as a thermometer or a thermostat. And so a lot of comics think of comedy as a thermostat. That is that it it can change the temperature of the room, you know, and thus in the in that way, like a thermostat can change the environment, so to speak. And and I think there are there are times where where jokes can have that that kind of an effect, a transformative kind of an effect. So, um, you know, the one of the famous stories is Reagan was um, uh, debating Mondale. Was it Mondale? It was Mondale. Probably the eighty yeah. election. And and one and and Reagan's age was a was starting to become a factor. Was he be was he be too old to be president? And and um, Reagan had this quip where he said, you know, um, I, I'm not going to make age an important factor in this in this election. I don't want to I don't want to use my opponent's youth and experience against him. <laughs> yeah, I remember that. Right. Something to that, ex- yeah. to that extent. And it, it had this transformative effect. It never no, none of those com- none of those complaints about his age ever stuck again in this in this kind of famous debate. However, you know, I, my belief is that comedy, in, like in your case, the experience of humor is more of a thermometer. It takes the temperature of the environment. And so when you're, when you're, when you're laughing at something or you're not laughing at something, it indicates how you're feeling and how you're thinking about that more so. And so, um, uh, you know, of course, both exist, but I think this idea of when we're laughing or not laughing, it's a good indicator of how we're doing better than our ability to transform how we're feeling with a joke. Well, and you talk about the complaining style, <clears throat> like I will, the people that just bitch about traffic and mm-hmm. just the drive in and all this, it's sort of like, you're all going to experience it. But I, if I'm going to, if I am going to retell a story like that, that is somewhat boring in my opinion because everybody gets stuck in traffic everybody's been cut off i'm looking for that unique angle where maybe it's a punchline almost and sort of retelling uh, an anecdote that happened to me as opposed to just bitching just to bitch yes which doesn't do anybody any good except just now lowers the temperature of the room to use your example yes yeah that's true complaining does change the temperature right yeah you know i mean most people's complaining um is often misguided. So, so people complain for a variety of reasons. First of all, complaining is very common. Um, I used to think I didn't complain, and then I realized, no, I just try to tell funny stories about the things that make me unhappy. Right, there's a big difference. There's a big difference, but it still is a, a voicing um, dissatisfaction with the world. So some complaints are just, you know, small talk, co- a, a topic of conversation. Some of it is to try to get you get someone to change their behavior. So if I if I complain about my friend's driving, the hope is that he or she stops driving <laughs> badly, right? You know that yeah. kind of thing. Um, some of it is um, is an interesting one is is this sort of self um, sort of social desirability, which is when I complain about things, it it says to the world that I have high standards. So when I complain about a meal, it, I might, it might be about me saying, I understand, I know what a good meal is and this is not a good meal. And then the last one is 
people think that it's cathartic. They think that it's going to really help them. Um, and uh, the cathartic benefits of complaining are rather meager. There are better ways to cope with your dissatisfaction. <laughs> well, and yeah, you talk about the, the sour person, right? And I, I had to learn to become an optimist. One of my, one of my other favorite books is Learned Optimism by Martin Seligman. Yes, yeah. And there's people that I've been around that are that dark and it's like i'm trying to help you here Mm -hmm. and you know even the moon can block out the sun at some point and it's just like i'm sorry like you are burning all my wattage here i cannot help you and it's starting to affect me it's so and that takes a long way to get to that point where that negativity is affecting my gravity but when it happens it's like for me it's hard to fast i'm like i am done i am out Here's a couple of therapists you need to go talk to. Yes. I cannot. It takes a lot to pull me down. When it happens, I'm like, sorry, I'm gone. Yeah, I get it. I mean, look, that's the great thing about therapy is you're paying the person, so they're going to stick with you. <laughs> that's true. No, keep collecting those checks. That's you know? right. So, yeah, I think that's right. I think it's very hard. I mean, some people have that ability and patience more than others. Um, some people are are unaware that it's having as as profound effect and don't protect themselves enough. Yeah, but yeah, I think that's that's right. Well, and then uh, you were talking about uh, to move on a little bit, talking about your your mom's ashes, and mm. I was reading that, and obviously the quantum leap I had at the moment was the scene from The Big Lebowski. At the oh end. right, yeah. So I'm reading that. And I'm chuckling. And then, you know, you talk about searching for the toe. Yeah. Right? And I think the use of the word toe, it's it's a funnier word. Like, finger sounds like you'd find something at your meal at the restaurant. Uh-huh. Or, you know, any sort of other body part. I think, like, you pick the most benign word <laughs> right, for right. that that just sort of deflated that balloon a little bit, you know. Yeah, so for the listener... Um... My, um, I had a difficult relationship with my mom and, um, I, and most people in her life had kind of, um, done what you, you were just talking about. They, they distanced her themselves from her and I, I decided not to do it. And so, um, she died suddenly, but not surprisingly. Um, this is now, this is in 2012. Um, and uh, so we had her cremated and my sister, um, and I are very close and, um, we decided that we were, instead of having, we weren't going to have a normal memorial service or funeral just because it, it would have been weird for these people to show up to this thing given their distance. And so Shannon and I, my sister and I drove down to the Jersey shore. We grew up in New Jersey. She still lives there. And we went to the, the beach that we used to always go to as kids. And my, um, my mom just loved that beach. Um, and we were going to sh- scatter her ashes in the ocean and so on. And so, so we had this box and carrying it there and we're kind of, em- we took turns emptying it. And I-, I made some crack about making sure like to get all the ashes out, like don't leave a toe behind, I think kind of thing. Now, you know, it's funny because I was reluctant to put that in the book um, Joel Warner, my co-author, was always very um, 
encouraging, you know, about authenticity because, um, you know, he's a journalist. He understands the value of this stuff. And I'm generally pretty fine with looking like an idiot. You know, I look like an idiot at various times in the book. Um, but the problem with that was like my sister thought that was funny. That's why I told the joke in that moment. I know my mom really wouldn't have minded, you know, either. Because sure. she could she could actually have a pretty sharp sense of humor about things when she was at her best. And we both got that from her. And so out of the context, without knowing what my sister's like and what my mom is like, that could seem a little bit callous in the moment, you know, that's there. But it was a, a moment of levity that was probably we both kind of needed and, you know, and, and so on. So that's funny that made an impression on you. <laughs> well, it, it reminded me of an anecdote from high school. So we were at a funeral. I think it was somebody's grandparent had passed away. And we're in the, the church and the pews. And then this kid gets up to play the piano and sing a song. And it was one of those moments where um, the laughter just becomes infectious. Uh -huh. yeah. You just see shoulders bobbing and people are just covering their mouth. And um, somebody was like, shut up. Like, he's blind. This uh, little kid was blind. And this woman, Shelly, who had just this, she was kind of like a stoner, kind of whatever. And she just was not trying to be funny. And that's why this put me on the floor, almost literally. She just goes, well, he's tone deaf, too. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, we're 16, 17 at yeah. this funeral. And she said that. And it, I think... I could have almost busted a rib from trying not to laugh so hard, but I was reading that story about your mom's ashes and yeah. the inappropriateness of that and the the wordplay and all that. And it, you couldn't have written that. Oh, it's any brilliant. Better. It's brilliant comedy. It's yeah. brilliant comedy. Actually it would be great. It would be a great scene in a movie. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I I think it's sort of you know, of course norms around um funerals differ. Right. In some places, there are tragedies and some places there are celebrations and so on. It'd be nice if we had more. I mean, first of all, I think that there's a lot more laughter around death than we would assume. Um, maybe it's not during the middle of a eulogy or so on, although I bet you that is the case. I'm not I'm just starting to I'm 48. So people are going to start dying soon. Right. And so we'll see. You know, I'll be going to a lot more funerals in the next 20 years than I did in the, in the previous 20 years. I like to say I'm in the sweet spot between weddings and funerals in my life. It's really wonderful. <laughs> the lull. It's great. <laughs> um, and, you know, and so any case, um, uh, you know, I mean, you, you can imagine why there would be, it could be good to have lots of comedy associated with this stuff. So my sister and I were pretty warmed up for my mom's, passing because um our our dad had died oh maybe i don't know now 15 years earlier um and uh this is this is a crazy story so you know a catholic family so he was embalmed open casket full-on catholic you know thing and um uh he had this won't be for everyone. Um, he had, 
he had so he had died from cancer so he had gotten very thin he was already a thin man and he had gotten very thin and so they had padded his body to fill out the suit that he was in and so we you know we're walking in we're going into the it was a you know viewing basically before all this stuff went down and my grandmother who had been with him to the very end um approached the casket and was commenting on what a good job they had done they the funeral home and so on and um and she was like kind of like putting her hands on his body you know because she knew that they had done this kind of a thing and i just remember my sister and i looking at each other just aghast about this moment right it's a very emotional moment seeing your father dead and then having your grandmother do this incredibly weird thing you know the seemed weird like violating to what norms we knew but you know of course she's close to him and you know all kind of stuff and later that night we were sharing a hotel room rolling on the floor laughing as we recounted that experience in the moment it wasn't funny but with a little bit of distance it became a hilarious moment to us in part because yeah you get down to it it was okay you know what i mean anyone in the world could could place their hands on my dad it was her his mom you know i mean who cared cared for him till the very end kind of thing and so i don't know i've had you know i haven't had much experience with these things but you know there's there it's in the same way like anytime there's darkness there's potential for comedy sure yeah i've been and actually if you if there is no darkness it's pretty impossible to get comedy in the sense that there has to be something wrong you need the violation Right when everything's perfect, you may be joyous, but you're probably not laughing. You know, fortunately or unfortunately, in our lives, there's always something wrong. So there's always the potential for a comedy. Would darkness be an absence of contentment? Would you frame it in those terms? Um, well, I think of this more on the stimulus side of things. Okay. So. There's always something going wrong. You know what I mean? And we, we know that when we're at, when, when things are great, if you're, you know, I would say this. Um, wisdom suggests that when everything is great, you should enjoy it because it's unlikely to remain. You know, that, that there's, there's going to be more difficult times coming. And, and, and you need that, that view of that difficult time is recognizing its difficulty and then also knowing that it's in some way going to be okay right yeah i've been thinking about this i read the daily stoic every day and talking you know memento mori you're going to die remember you're going to die Mm -hmm. and i went to this site called the death calculator so it's it's some general um actuarial table so i've got like something like eleven thousand nine hundred days left to live and this is um this is is this the one i've seen one where it's stochastic so it gives you a probability distribution have you seen this no i haven't yeah so so this i'm sorry to interrupt no yeah so this idea of a reminder of so it's and your yours is based upon you've made it to this age Correct. Your age, height, weight, gender. Right. Where you live and stuff. It's a very simple quiz. So, you know, I I wanted to kind of put it in context and just have it as a reminder. Well, you should find this other page. I wish I could know what it is, but it's basically, it's like a death calculator. Okay. 
but it's a um, it's a probability distribution. Oh, and so what it has are these balls rolling. And then based upon the probability at different ages you will die, they drop off and it builds a distribution. And so the, so your 11,000 days is probably the mean of the distribution, assuming the same assumptions of the model. I'm really geeking out right now. I know this. <laughs> On my death. Yes. Or, at, well, you could say hours because we're, we're similar ages, heights, yeah. and so on. Um, live in the same place, et cetera. So here's the scary thing is the probability that you die next year mm. is, is like one or 2%, right? Like that's the thing. Like, so when I saw this, thanks for reminding me, it's probably good to be reminded. <laughs> <laughs> it's like one, you know, like, like guys like you and me, the likelihood that we die in the next year is like 1%. Sure. You know what I mean? Even though we'll probably live to 86, right? You know what I mean? Like that's the, that's the thing. That's the thing that go, you go, whoa. It's not that I have 40 more years. It's I probably have 40 more years, but I might have four more months. Right. Yeah. Or four more hours. <clears throat> right. Driving True. home from you, Boulder today. Yes. You know, in a vehicle, my odds go dramatically up. That's right. right. Yes. So this this could be goodbye. This could be yeah, well, I'm going I hope you get this uploaded by the time <laughs> <laughs> If I'm in a fiery crash, I will throw the laptop out the door. <laughs> Don't save me. Upload the episode. <laughs> I look. I run a podcast. I know. I know what that's like. Yeah, I will. I will send it to you as a backup. Thank you. But where I was going with all that <laughs> was that I want to make a, a a death video to be played at my funeral. Okay. All right. So not the the standard PowerPoint with the Sarah McLaughlin, Sarah McLaughlin piano music. Yeah. In the background. Right. 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 Like, you know, it opens up and I want it to be you know, somewhat fairly produced okay. and updated over the years. But okay. I want it to capture my essence. I know it sounds kind of egotistical, but I want it to capture like really who I am. Right? You want to talk some shit to some people? Exactly. Right? <laughs> yeah. It's like go through a list. Phil. <laughs> yeah. I never liked you. Right. <laughs> but just to have it be a celebration, more like a, a wake almost. I but see. Yeah, to have and so the the death clock and the eleven thousand days and the stoicism is all tying into the the mortality, but not in a fearful way, but mm-hmm. like in a celebratory way. I see. You know, so tell can I? I want I'm going to turn this around on you for. I know I hate this when people like start asking me questions on my podcast. I don't hate it, but I'm always surprised when people start asking me questions on my podcast. But I want to ask you a question. Yeah, which is, so I haven't got behind the stoicism yet. Okay. And I know it's like super popular with guys like us, you know, in the entrepreneurial community, the, you know, like the tech world, there's a lot, you know, the Tim Ferriss mm-hmm. readers of the world and so on. And, um, uh, and so could you, you, you could do it for your, your listeners, but can you make a case for why I should pay attention to stoicism? I mean, I might be doing some of those yeah. things anyways, but just like, 
why should I, why should I, first of all, I'm not going to look at the daily stoic every day, but why should I look at once a week? Sure. So that's how I came into it was Tim Ferriss talking about Ryan Holiday. So that's how I was exposed to it. Okay. <clears throat> and I mentioned uh, Learned Optimism. Mm-hmm. And without a doubt, that book has saved my life twice. Okay. So going through two divorces and the first time not really having any sort of operating system to handle struggles like that. Mm-hmm. So. To give you some broad strokes context, I was 30 something, I would say. I'm making notes right okay. now, actually. <laughs> this is <laughs> good, good. So, um, 30 something, I was a uh, full time software engineer, married, two kids, had a house, and my mom had died when I was 20. Okay. So, I thought this was going to be, I thought the universe actually owed me a free pass. Oh, I see. Yeah. So, hit with this divorce and had and i had a stack of books like on your shelf of self-help you know things like that and they were Mm. all just let's just be happy today Mm -hmm. it's like it never resonated so someone and i I would love to thank him turned me on to learn optimism okay and the premise of that book was that like you'd mentioned about joy right so joy is temporary and things will change Mm mm-hmm but what it taught me was that when it changes, it doesn't have to darken my entire mood, right? And the, the, some of the tenets of that book are that life is a series of ups and downs, mm-hmm. but it's more like the stock market. It's going to fluctuate, but generally it's an uptick. Mm-hmm. And that sort of expanded me into, I read something about um, the, the Finns. So they, in Finland, they view life as a struggle and a challenge, mm-hmm. but not in a negative, pessimistic way. Like this is something that you need to work on. This is something like this is life and it's a challenge. Mm-hmm. And so when I was <clears throat> introduced, and I'm a big Tim Ferriss fan, but not everything. I've got Tools of Titans like that and parts of the four-hour work week. But when I was introduced to that, um, the stoicism, it really gave me a a historical view on the power of learned optimism okay in a way that was more like i I like the fact that it was ancient greek and 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 what so the stoics essentially are about this idea of well you you can you can you can tell me better but this idea of recognizing that life is challenging correct and so you start from that point right not from the point that life is joyous correct okay correct and i'm probably gonna get some of these points wrong but my my first uh when i first heard stoicism or stoic on when holiday was on ferris's podcast was that when i say stoic or people would say stoic before that i'm thinking like the easter island heads yeah that's nothing unaffected yes correct And that's one of the first things that he deconstructs is that it's not that you're emotionless and it, you save the emotion for things that really and truly matter. Mm -hmm. And that took me down several rabbit holes with unfuck yourself and the subtle art of not giving a fuck. (laughs) Right. There's there's lots of books about not giving fucks and not giving shits anymore now. Right. Yeah. There's lots of these. Right. But it's, 
simply and just the two of those mesh at least for me mm-hmm. in a way that <clears throat> helped me comprehend things and manage things i see and i'm still um everybody calls me very laid back and mm-hmm. i still have the engineer uh, somewhat struggle with detail side of things but i'm always figuring out contingency plans mm. but not in a way that i think they're going to go wrong so like highway 36 might be closed all right i'm taking baseline to 93 and go that down that way mm-hmm. and if i get stuck in golden i know four or five people there that can go stay with them and, okay you know so if and when things go wrong, I don't take it in a negative context. It's like I can handle this because I've worked to do that as opposed to just banging my fist on the steering wheel and calling, you know, somebody going, God damn traffic. You know, it's just like take care of your shit. Right? Mm-hmm. You know, the um, for the Mark Manson book, The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck. Mm-hmm. Um, just if people haven't read the book, you can skip the book and find his essay so he wrote an essay you get everything you need from the essay Fifty thousand words fewer (laughs) um but you know the thing about that idea and this sounds like uh very closely related is his argument is that you don't care about things he's just you have to care about the the you have to care about the important things correct so you don't you don't give these fucks to you don't give them away easily you give them you give them when they're needed correct and that that i think is a that's a clever framing of that idea it's not worth it to get upset about the the um the traffic but it's worth it to get upset about some things right and as long as the thing is worth it then you should get upset and you know and you should very upset that's right yeah and so that's that's kind of a neat thing um i would suggest maybe coming at it if you were going to explore any of ryan holiday's books coming at it from a uh, skeptical point of view on the stoicism Mm -hmm. perhaps looking at ego as the enemy first so that's one of the companions as he unravels that stoicism i see or um there's a version that ferris recommended from marcus aurelius meditations okay that I actually really liked it's he mentions that bill clinton reads it once a year and it's it's in bite-sized pieces. And so, and like I said, I don't take everything that he says and just, I'm not a zealot of his, but he, it, he presents these topics and just based on my exploration and my path, I was like, this, this resonates. To yeah. Some of it. Ferris is a, I, I think Ferris <clears throat> is great gift, uh, at least from a publishing standpoint. He's a, he's a great curator. Yeah. He's very good at curating ideas. Yeah. Um, I'll give you I'll give you my alternative okay. to stoicism that I've been kicking around. Um, I actually ended my MBA class last semester by asking students a variety of questions questions to answer over your over break questions to ask yourself over break, and one of them was, "Are you the hero in the story of your life?" Hmm. And um, and I asked that question purposely because um, and then I. Then I teach them about the hero's journey, um, the Joseph Campbell hero's journey. You can find it in, and almost any book about screenwriting or you know any sort of narrative kind of thing. But 
the idea essentially is, is that like when you watch the average Hollywood film that's based upon you know this kind of classic hero trope, there are um, there are these sort of moments, and I I don't know all of them by 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 memory, but there's these sort of general ideas that are present. So so the first one is is some call to action, right? So there's something that compels the hero to set off on a different course in their life. And what's interesting is that, um, that typically they resist that call mm. to action. There's some reason why they don't want to do it or can't do it. Um, but they eventually succumb and they, and they head off onto this, onto this, um, this, this journey of sorts. And um, there's several things that happen along the way, which, which makes the hero's journey entertaining to watch. And that is um, a series of escalating challenges that happen, right? So no one wants to watch a movie in which the hero wins easily, you know. And so you know, in the in the um, right. So so let's take the Matrix as an example. So it's classic hero's journey, right? Mm-hmm. So so Neo, um, forgive audience, forgive me if you don't know the Matrix. It it's worth watching. But if you don't know it, but basically Neo is approached by Morpheus and told like, you know, that, that he, need, you know, he basically is the one, you know what I mean? In some, in some way. So this idea of, he resists this idea at various times. One of, but early on he goes out on the ledge cause he's being pursued and he, he gives up, you know? And, and so that was the first call to action and he actually resists it. And so on. eventually he. You know, he takes the red pill and he's pulled out of the matrix, et cetera, et cetera. But what has to happen in the, and, and so all <clears> along <throat> the way, the challenges get greater and greater and greater. Um, you know, Neo actually, spoiler alert, dies and is recreated, but comes back to life in very, very um, religious kind of uh, reference. But what happens is that there's usually both a physical change, a physical challenge and a psychological challenge. That is, the hero needs to overcome some physical um, challenge, but they also have to change internally. So there's both an external and an ex- internal and external struggle that exists. Um, and then, uh, and so, so that I think is a good metaphor for life. Mm-hmm. That you're going to have challenges, and the closer you get to the realizing your heroism, often is the challenge becomes even greater and bigger. That's there. The second thing that I think is really useful is that you that they rarely do it alone. Hmm. That throughout the hero's journey, there are people. Not only are there people trying to stop you, right? That's part of the challenges. But there are people trying to help you. <clears throat> and so, recognizing the role of those people that they're there for you. And what's interesting in the hero's journey is that there are often very different types of people. You know, so in Star Wars, you have Obi-Wan Kenobi, the old man helping the young kid, you know, and the the young kid thinking this old man is just like some homeless guy, you know, you know. And so recognizing that that help can come from people who are very different than you, you know, in that sense. And so um, that's something that I like to kind of kick around and might need to remind myself sometimes that if you want to accomplish something worthwhile you know then that you're going to have these these moments of challenge actually 
it's necessary for right to do it because anything worth doing is going to be difficult to do struggle <laughs> yeah, yeah that's right like you know you know saving humanity <laughs> neo <laughs> gonna be hard <laughs> have you uh listened to or read stephen pressfield's war of art you know it's interesting i i just purchased that for a friend i have a friend who's a writer she's a better writer than i'll ever be um and she doesn't but i write more than her because i write more than her and I, I, I'm, I've been on her about, you just need to write. Just That's what writers do. They write. They write every day. So I, I purchased that for her, and I, I flipped through it and read it, read through it. I, she doesn't know this, but I read through it before I gave it to her. <laughs> I bought it for her, but then I read And I dog-eared one page, I remember. just Which page was it? You know, I can't remember exactly what. It was something about excuses or something like that. I, yeah. I, I can't that but it was like it really that page resonated with with me uh it was something about like once you let it slide or something like that fun book yeah i've listened to that probably six or seven times i get it and whenever i feel stuck that's the first one that i fire up on audible i get it and hit replay yeah i i I get it you know i've been um i've been reading charles bukowski okay He's um he's such an interesting guy. He's one of these kind of curmudgeonly writers, <laughs> you know, alcoholic. Uh, I, I you know it's weird. Like I I I'm like a pretty happy guy, and then occasionally I'll read like Martin Amis or someone like Bukowski, who are diamet- diametrically opposed to my personality kind of thing. Bukowski has this really amazing story where he, I think he started writing around, like late in life. Uh, he had been a postal worker. And um, I know this story. Yeah, the story. So this press basically offered him like a hundred dollars a month or something to write or something like that kind of thing. And he has this famous line. I'm going to butcher it, but some I'm almost tempted to pull it up. But um, about he's like, I could continue to work as a slave, more or less, or I could choose to write and 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 starve. I've decided to starve, you know, this kind of thing like there. And, and the world's better off for that because he, you know, um, he truly has a gift. Um, like he, his first book is, uh, I think semi autobiographical and it's laugh out loud, funny at times, like full on laugh out loud, funny, Nice. which it's hard to do. That's hard to do with written word. Yeah. Well, in the War of Art, you had mentioned you know getting towards the end, and he talks about resistance. Mm. And with your author friend, the quote I thought you were going to mention was that uh, in that conversation, somebody had asked an author, "When does he write?" And he says, "Well, only when the muse strikes." Oh, him. yes, yes, yes. And then the muse strikes him every day at nine a.m. Yes, yeah, yeah. Um, I'm sorry, I'm so excited about that. That might be the dog-eared page. Okay. It where yeah, the idea is that is you start to write and the muse comes to you. You don't wait for the muse to start to write. Correct. Yes, or create. It doesn't have to be. I yeah. mean, writing is just one form of creation. So it could be painting or making music or whatever that thing right. is. Yeah. yeah. 
I totally geeked out on the Gates of Fire, his interpretation of Thermopylae with the 300. So you have to remind me because so he wrote. um, So Thermopylae is the um, Persians versus the Athenians. No, um, Spartans. So the Battle of 300, so 300 defeated all that, so which came into Frank Miller's 300. Yes. <clears throat> mm-hmm. Yeah, and then uh, Pressfield reimagined and did a, a dramatic, just massive book called Gates of Fire about that. But he dove into and created all these characters, and it was still, um, I'm blanking on the king's name, King, um, I'm seeing, King Leonidas. So he had just reimagined this whole thing. And so I would watch 300 and then read his book and listen to it. And it was just, it, he's way into the Greek mythology and the gods and all that I stuff. See. But, you know, I, I know we're getting a little far away from talking about humor, but I mean, this stuff's fun because, yeah. I mean, I really have recreated my career based upon insights from, um, you know, th- this, this world that's, you know, now we have access to because of the internet and because of books beyond just the seven habits of highly effective people. There's lots of information out there, life hacking, inspirational Mm -hmm. stuff and, and good lessons, um, good lessons to learn. You know, for me, one of them is, um, my, I'm resisting consumption nowadays in, in favor of creation. And so I, you know, and, and so the war of art, for example, is, is about, you have to create the creating is painful and it's hard. It's challenging. You might not always be up for it, but you got to do it. And the, the issue is, is that consumption is easy. Right. And, um, you know, it's free, it's easy, it's passive. It's, it's good. I mean, you know, there are, thousands of hours of good podcasts and television and film and and so on and so i'm really um trying to create foremost and then i'm only consuming to try to feed the creation so almost all my consumption right now is about reading and i'm watching very little um you know and so uh i think that there's a lot of people in the world who have stories in them have things to make and speaking of martin seligman you know martin's martin's i think greatest um accomplishment or or contribution to psychology is this new model of happiness the perma model which suggests there are multiple paths to living a good life to flourishing and um um, so you've got pleasure engagement relationships, meaning, and achievement. And I think um, this notion, this E, this engagement, some people know it in terms of flow. Mm-hmm. It's a really nice path to living a good life if you can cultivate it. But you have to cultivate it through creation, not through consumption. And um, um, it's, it's, it explains a lot of reasons why people are artists, despite the fact that they're impoverished despite the fact that it affects their relationships negatively. Like if you can understand how compelling a world of engagement can be, you know, um, that Bukowski was willing to starve in order to pursue it. Um, And if you can 
You know, it's why I'm rooting for my friend because I think she can live, a, you know, she can get eventually past the pain that she's going through trying to write every day and that she might even then get the A, the achievement. Mm-hmm. You know, which that's an interesting world is when you can then the day to day become so engaging that you feel compelled to do it and that it can turn into something that can change your life financially, you know, especially, you know, that's there. So, yeah. It's the pain of discipline or the pain of regret. One of the two. Yeah, I think that's, yeah, that's right. Yeah. I mean, I'm, um, uh, I'm really optimistic and, um, and, but I'm also have the benefit of, of I'm, I have very little regret. So I get to, I get the best of both worlds, right? <laughs> so I'm like, oh yeah, I'm definitely going to write that book. And people are like, but a lot can go wrong. Like, no, no, it's going to happen. And, and then, you know, it'll get done and it may not be, you know, the humor code was not a, a big seller. It got tons of media, but it didn't sell well. I'm just like, oh, well, okay. This next one will be better as a result, you know, like that. And so that's, um, and I don't know exactly why I'm like that. It's, I think the best, my best explanation, I haven't, luckily I haven't had to study so stoicism to get like that. I think the best thing is that I haven't, now I'm old enough that I have enough stories to know on balance it's going to work out. You know, like, you know, when you're young, you never know. Does, yeah. When you're in your 20s, you, you just have optimism. When you're in your 40s, you know that you can deliver most of the time. Right, not all the time. I mean, you know, most of the time. But you wrote a book, right? If we went to a well, coffee shop. I co-wrote shop, a book. But co-wrote yes. a book. Right? <laughs> but if we went to a coffee shop. He wrote shop, most of the book. <laughs> Joel's a great writer. <laughs> <laughs> but if we went to a coffee shop and just burst in and just ask people how many people are writing a screenplay or a novel yeah. or something like that, I get we get a lot of hands that would go up. You get a lot of hands, yeah. And it's not what you're doing; it's what you're completing that how you're going to be it's tr- yeah, defined, it's true. right? So you co-wrote a book, right? Yeah. How many people never even got that far? Yeah, it's true. Yeah, it's um. It's hard. It was hard. It was really hard. Um, it was fun too. I mean, it was life changing. Yeah, I, you know, I, I, as I've gotten older, I've become a closer. You know, I'm good at closing now. Because what happens is it's easy to fall in love with new ideas. Yeah. And the and SFO, the shiny fucking object. That's right. Yeah, this new bauble. Um, but closing something is hard because you're sick of it, and you just, you know what I mean, and and so. I have a, a general rule is I, at least with my academic papers, I always start in the morning when I'm working on academic work, I, I always start with the project closest to publication, mm. all things equal, the thing closest to publication, um, unless there's some deadline or I owe someone something. So something that's further from publication may bump up to number one in the queue, but all things equal, I work on the thing closest to publication. And that's, um, that has served me well. Well, let's transition okay. to. Um, I want to make sure we get get to this. Is is your uh, your humor in business? So I was at your seminar. Is that two months ago? Three months ago? It was in January. Okay. Yeah. 
Yeah. Um, yeah. Thank you for coming. Yeah. To it. Yeah. It was, it was great. great. I I even brought my homework so you can grade it. Oh, sweet. <laughs> so um, shit storming. Yeah. So <laughs> I have a new project. Um, I call it Shtick to Business. I'm still kicking around the descriptor of it. For a while, it was serious business lessons from the masters of comedy. I don't exactly like that because I'm now I have business in both the title and the descriptor. I've been leaning toward more towards what the masters of comedy can teach you about taking chances, breaking rules, and standing out in a serious world. That's nice, but wordy. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Any case, um, email me if you guys have any ideas. <laughs> so, um, so the interesting thing about that that project was that it actually came. It came out of a constraint that I set for myself. So, so you know, I'm a, I'm a behavioral economist. I do research in emotions and decision making. I spent 10 years answering the question, what makes things funny? And trying to, to understand its implications for living a good life. To bring my day job together, my day job teaching MBAs, and my night job decoding comedy together... The obvious thing to do would be to do a project about humor and leadership, about how leaders use comedy to get, to be effective. And I, I, I kicked it around. I developed a talk. I did some writing on the topic. And I just grew to hate it. Hmm. And I grew to hate it because I just think that it's, lim- it's a limiting topic that is that most leaders first of all don't actually need comedy to be successful and very few of them can actually pull it off and that there are real real risks of being trying to be funny especially in a professional environment and so it so the idea <laughs> oh, yeah. of, of standing in front of so that talk where there was 150 people in the room so the idea of telling 150 people that they should be funny in order to get ahead in business, I'm like, look, I think a third of them would benefit, a third would have no effect, and a third would be worse off. And so that's not the kind of general message that I want to give. Now, if someone wants to hire me for some executive coaching, then I can help that person. But to broadcast a message, just it, it wasn't right. So I was like, I'm not going to do this. And so I had a decision to make, which was, do I not work on this topic related to business? And especially because all the business talks that I had given up to that point were pretty meager. They're pretty middling. And I, I don't know about you, but... To get up in front of 150 people and to give a half-assed talk. It's not half-assed, but like to give a talk that's not that strong is not a good feeling. It's vanilla. It's, it's just, yeah. it's it's a waste of my time and it's a waste of their time. And so I thought about sh- like shuttering my professional speaking. Hmm. You know, just like, I don't have to do it. You know, and so I was only going, I was like, so I'm either going to shut it down or I'm going to do it in a way that is going to be great for me in the audience. And I have a very good friend. I was on a hike with him and I was presenting these, these options. And to be honest, I was leaning towards shutting it down. 
And he goes, well, like, how much effort have you put into making it great? Like on a one to 10 scale, like what kind of effort have you put in? And I said, I don't know, three or four. He goes, well, of course it's not great. He goes, you owe it to yourself to give, to put in 10 effort and then decide. He's like, when you, when you, you know, anything you've ever done in your life that you've been proud of, what kind of effort did you put in? And I'm like, nine or 10. Mm -hmm. He goes, all right, there you go. And so that's what I decided to do. So I, um, I decided to put in extra, you know, this high level of effort and I, and I seized upon this idea, just a moment, you know, a moment of creativity where the, the message is not to get people to be funny. It's get them to think funny. That is to, to recognize that. So I was saying in my, in my MBA class, business is hard. Business is hard. Business is hard. (laughs) And my students laugh and they make fun of me and everything, but I like, constantly say that to remind them that it's it is you know we just see the we see the the jobs and the apples and the amazons and the bezos of the world and we don't see their struggles and we certainly don't see the struggles of the people who we don't know well if business is hard i don't know what comedy is it's way harder than business and so even though these people aren't the traditional Bezoses and Jobses of the world, they have practices and perspectives. And so my this new project is about translating these their habits, um, their their techniques and and giving them to professionals to try to to take more chances, to break the rules, to find ways to stand out, right? To, to, for, you know, an edge, just, you know, if someone's looking for an edge and they're tired of all the regular books and the regular ideas, this is a kind of entertaining talk, you know, which is fun because I get to talk about comedy, but then it also has these, these lessons. So, so the homework you were given, um, so I, I, one of the lessons is the reversal. That is that, comedians produce an opposing perspective that is you're expecting them to to say everybody believes x they talk about about y you know they talk about why everybody thinks x is good they talk about why x is bad everybody thinks about y is good they talk about y is bad you know and they do this regularly so um you know i bill burr's on there's a clip on youtube of him talking to um conan about he's got this bit about the, the military and how now the, the military, every, they're all supposed to be heroes, you know, and like when they're boarding the plane early, we're all supposed to salute and thank them for their service and everything. And, you know, he, he has a reversal, which is like, really? Are all of those folks heroes? <laughs> you know, so yeah. he's like the guy in the fighter jet taking off from the aircraft carrier. That guy's a hero. But the guy pointing him in the direction of the fight <laughs> Is that guy a hero? Right. So I'm not doing this joke justice, but you, you're laughing yeah. about, it. you know, the yeah. premise is very strong, right? So the reversal is it's everywhere in comedy. And so what I, what I want to say is that like, well, this notion of a reversal is actually useful in business. If everybody's zigging, it might be useful to zag, you know? And so you can find all these 
really interesting business case studies of um, companies that go against the grain, reverse course. Um, so, so one, I, my, one of my favorites is um, uh, um, P90X, Tony Horton. So P90X is these incredibly hard workout, 90-minute workouts that will just crush you. You know, the joke is my my warm-up is your workout, mm-hmm. right? The warm-up for P90X is the average person's workout. Well, this this came th- – that doesn't seem that surprising nowadays in a world of CrossFit and Orange Theory and, you know, all these tough classes. But back when it was launched, everything was like, it's never been so easy to get in shape, Seven minute abs and stuff like that, right? So, so, so everybody's talking about prom- making these promises about easiness, and and P90X goes the op reverses course and goes in the opposite direction. So the homework was was how do you create the opposite of brainstorming? All right. So brainstorming is about creating good solutions to problems, um, and that's hard to do. And it go actually goes against our instincts, which is to to naturally critique in the moment and so on and so. So I have the audience do something I call shit storming, which <laughs> is to come up with terrible, truly <laughs> terrible, awful solutions to a problem. And um, that seems a little counterintuitive. Um, what I say is it's a good warm up for brainstorming because it eliminates the critiques. Because right. what are you going to say? Your your solution's not bad enough, <laughs> you know. And then the other one is is that you know sometimes what seems like a bad solution can, you get that moment of wait wait a second. That's not a bad idea. And, and so that happened with my homework. Yeah. Is that right? Mm-hmm. So so please. Oh, and the last thing is when you have those awful solutions, you can flip them, right? So now you already have an idea, and you can flip it around. So you have so it's. So shitstorming is beneficial in three ways. So please tell me. I'm dying to hear this. So I I was there because I had seen your presentation at Davida, the short one for leads, probably a year ago. Okay. And so I saw it come up again because I'm on the email list. It's like, hey, come see my son. Come see like a, a longer form of that presentation. And so the, the shitstorming idea my entrepreneurial company is a clothing company. So I have a, a chest warmer for cycling and for running, right? And so I make fun of it all the time. It's a dicky, you know, and the the on the webpage, there's a, a whole fake like drug thing, like from like a pharmaceutical company. So, I see. So it prevents purple nurple. So I've got stock photos of doctors and, you know, the sad woman in bed with her husband. So I just, I totally go at, the the pharmaceutical side and have fun with it right so your shitstorming idea was to just have a whole bunch of bad ideas and the one that stuck out because essentially it's just a bib yeah and, so wait, so what was the problem you were trying to solve uh like just a marketing campaign got it okay. just get the word out right? i see yeah and so how do you stand out how correct. do you cut through the clutter yes. yeah and so tying back into the the toothpaste example you used you know um not new not improved mm-hmm. And going at the shitstorming, the idea that I came up with, the tagline, which is not final, which I'll be using, is half a thing, still full price. Okay. Because <laughs> it's it's just a front. It's not a vest. Yeah, right? that's right. But I wrote that down and I looked at it and I go, I was trying to create a bad idea. And like, that's actually all right. Yeah, yeah. There's I see the potential in there. there the premise yeah. is right. Yeah. Yeah. Half the vest. 
still full price. Yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah half and full seems to be the, the there's something there. Right. Yeah. Right. That's fun. Wait, I get 10%, right? Sure. <laughs> <laughs> That's the thing. Absolutely. 10%. <laughs> Uh, but I, I like the, the business presentation because I came to improv just with little, I call them like little lightning bugs throughout just like a course of a year. So somebody on Tim Ferriss had talked about how improv actually improves your brain. Mm. I want to find, I've been searching for that and I can't find that episode and that, uh, that guest that talked about it, but Daniel Pink talked about it in To Sell as Human and it's helped me as a salesperson and a professional and the, the, the techniques and the humor code and what you've talked about in your humor and business, they, they, you don't have to be funny, but I, you hit upon that. You have to think in that way. Business rewards thinking differently. Yes. I mean, otherwise you're a commodity. Correct. And now you're competing on price, right? And Race so, to the bottom. Yeah. Look, that's no, look, as a consumer, I love the race to the bottom. But for my students who want to build a business, I want them to think differently. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I I would even if I hadn't been if I could like erase my you know, comedic stuff. And I'm a freshman at improv. I'm not, in no way saying I'm good at this art form. But in experiencing some of the lessons in there it has made a difference in my business relationships, my personal relationships. Yeah. And the example that I use all the time is when I go to uh, Starbucks, for example, I actually listen now to what the cashier says. Ah. So there's people, you ever had somebody says like, uh, Hey, thanks for coming in. And you go, you too. Right. Like mm-hmm. click where you've got that, yes. <laughs> you know, that canned response. And it took me a while to understand that this was happening because mm-hmm. they would say, here's your change. You know, have a great day. Thousand mm-hmm. one. I'm looking them in the eye and I go, oh, thanks. Yeah, I'll see you later. Yeah. You have a good day, too. And I didn't know I was doing it. And that came from the, the improv trainings, so actually being present and listening. Mm-hmm. And so to me, it makes a ton of sense to be applied to the business world in that way. Yeah, the, um, so one of the lessons, general lessons I call cooperate to innovate. And um, it's really looking past yes and. So in you know this translation of improv lessons into, into regular life, everybody talks about yes and, but there are a lot more than that. And so yours, um, your, your notion of listening, you have to listen as, a, as an improviser. Because you and the other person are making a scene. And so they may be talking about you're in a zoo. And if you're not listening, you're paying attention to what you're going to say next. The next thing you're saying is you're in a McDonald's. And now the audience, now this is bad comedy. Yeah, it's a hard right turn. That's right. And yeah. the, the, now you just have created confusion. And so you have to listen first. I mean, it's incredibly difficult to do improv well. Because you have to be listening to what they're saying as well as thinking about this. As well as then once you figure out. Once you're doing games, you're doing the Herald, you have to be thinking about what happened three scenes ago. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, um, uh, it's, those are, and, and I think you're right, like the, these skills, most of life is improvisational. Because we don't know what's going to happen. I mean, this entire conversation, <laughs> I mean, you know, you've written down some, some questions, but aside from you writing down those questions, 
this whole thing is improvisational. Yeah. And so um, we would benefit from being trained in how to think improvisationally. I think business schools do a terrible job at this. They teach systematic thinking. You want to learn how to run a model, use Excel, figure out the, you know, present value of, you know what I mean? You know, money, whatever. You can do all those things. But like, where is it that we teach people how to, right, make decisions in a, in a fast manner, you know, in a group setting, right? Like, we just hope students figure it out because we stick them on teams. So maybe someday I'll teach this class. We'll see. <laughs> well, we did it at the start of this when I was relating my learned optimism story. You know, I was t- going through... I said a tough point and you said, oh, was it uh, irritable bowel syndrome? <laughs> and I immediately agreed with you because had I just pumped the brakes and said exactly what it was, it would have killed the the momentum. And, yes. And it, we weren't playing a game, but right. like I saw, I was like, I saw the, the comedy in that and it's like, well, yeah, of course. Let's and just then, then just, yeah. uh, you know, pull it out. And so that was way funnier than like going, Oh no, it's so hard to no. Sorry, Pete. It was <laughs> right. You know, and then wrong, <laughs> wrong. I had a boss that I would just be throwing ideas around, and she would always. It would just be like, no, no, no. And mm-hmm. I said, none of this is going to see the light of day. None of this is flight ready. We're just talking about potential marketing things. I'm throwing out ideas, right? And I kind of had to coach her a little bit and just go this we're just brainstorming here we're just Mm -hmm. thinking about things because i say that we want to do this marketing campaign it's not going to happen Mm -hmm. so immediately she would always have these ideas like oh we don't have the budget for that and you know we tried that before blah 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 i'm like no 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 we're not approving this po we're just kicking around it we're having a conversation and it's so frustrating when people will just immediately not even yes and or no but you know the the i think pink talks about that in in terms of brainstorming just we're not doing this we're thinking about it Mm -hmm. can you just relax a little bit and help me out here and just think about things you know yeah the issue is you need you need systems to overcome our natural tendencies um, I know you have to wrap up, but I'll, I'll say this quickly. Um, there's uh, there's this really wonderful book called The Beauty of Constraints. Okay. It's a really well-executed book. Um, and in it, they talk about can if. Mm. And so, so the rule is that instead of saying we can't do that, you, say, you have to say we can if. Yes. Right? So if you say, oh, let's do X, and then, then people... So, the, you know, the rule being people say, yeah, we could do that if this happens and this happens. You know what I mean? That kind of thing. And so that is that's both uplifting and practical. Um, and so I thought that was a nice way to try to institutionalize that perspective. But that sales, right? If it's simply the scheduling of this interview, mm-hmm. right? Hey, I met you at your presentation would you be willing to do a podcast back and forth 
here's a couple I of did days. can if that. I said, I yes. can if you're willing to talk about this new project. Yes. I don't know if you remember that. I do. Okay. I do. Yeah. So agree to that. Yeah. And then agree to a date, a couple mm-hmm. of dates and times, back and forth. But that's something that I think a lot of people don't realize is that no is the starting point. Mm. It's not the end of the discussion. It's I've always heard it as it's a request for more information. I see. So if you had said no, I probably would have, you know, proposed one or two mm. more gentle things. And at the end of the day, like if it doesn't happen, it doesn't happen. Yeah. But no is not the end of it. It's so as you're navigating through a, a business trying to sell them something, hey, we can't do this. But if we get it on the budget for next year and if the CFO signs mm-hmm. this off, you know, you're asking all these kinds of questions. So I think I would buy the book. I would use it. And I think anybody that you know got their hands on it, if they got one or two things out of it, would be very, very useful. Oh, that's nice. Well, not a book yet. Okay. We'll see. If it was. It's a project. Okay. <laughs> it's a project. Tell you what, if you could make it a class yes. this fall so I can come back and finish <laughs> my son's senior year at Leeds. I see. That would be awesome. Yeah. <laughs> I think eventually I'd like to, you know, these are tough classes to get through the gauntlet. Yeah. But, you know, I, I think it it could be a, one of those fun elective courses. That, um, we'll see. Someday. Be patient, everyone. <laughs> be patient. The only other question I wanted to touch on was um, in, in talking about the classes do you get shit from the other professors just by the nature of being the humor research lab? Is there some good natured teasing? Yeah, ribbing. Or, yeah. Um, my colleagues here are either silent or supportive, right? So I don't really get many critiques. Um, they're, uh, I would say this, that if I had probably asked the average person here, should I study humor, they would have suggested it wasn't a good idea. Mm. Good news, I don't ask my colleagues what I should be studying. (laughs) Um, I have had um, a little bit of like backhanded kind of stuff from people at other universities. My favorite story was I was meeting, uh, I was at an Ivy League school, business school, giving a talk. Um, meeting with this professor and he said, you know, I'm really impressed with what you've done with this humor research. He's like, cause studying humor is a career killer. And so I said, thank you. Dick. So, you know, um, you know, I think the problem with studying humor, uh, but it's also an oppor- creates an opportunity. The problem is at first blush, it seems frivolous. And so it's, it's not something that serious science should be tackling. Um, it creates an opportunity because people overlook it because it actually isn't necessarily frivolous. It's actually really quite important and more important than many of the things that people choose to dedicate their lives to, right? So if you think about the amount of laughter you and I have had here, it's way more than the amount of embarrassment or pride or regret or other types of emotional experiences that people Mm -hmm. choose to study. And so in that way, I'm kind of glad that at first blush, it it doesn't seem terribly serious. Um, because I think when I look back on my career, it, it might be the most important thing I've done. I enjoyed the book. I thought it was, um, it touched on many concepts I've seen presented other ways, but tied very nicely together. And it, 
it was a fascinating read. I liked it. Thanks. That's yeah. good. Well, with that, um, Dr. Peter McGraw, where can people find you and, and your work? Um, my website's petermcgraw.org. And uh, I'm not really that active on social media anymore. Um, I'm, you can find me I'm a bit on Twitter, um, at Peter McGraw. Cool. And uh, I have a podcast myself uh, called I'm Not Joking <laughs> that looks at the lives of funny people. Excellent. Well, thank you so much. I've really enjoyed this and I appreciate you making the time. Yeah, it was great. Thank you. Cool.